My name is Roy Pedden. I'm a Gloucestershire man. I was born at Stoke Bishop near Bristol, and my father uh, was in business in that city. I went to Kipton College, uh, to which I became very attached. It was governed by the classical side in those days, and the military side of which I was a member came a long way behind. A great deal of attention was given to games, but on the other hand, I got a great deal out of the school uh, from the point of view of dis discipline, esprit de corps, and all that I got out of, of my house. After Tipton, <coughs> a merchant ventures technical college at Bristol. The teaching there was excellent, and I worked under the first professor of automobile engineering, called Professor Morgan, a fine chap who helped me to the realization that with all the workshop practice in the world, the theoretical approach of engineering was needed to give the right perspective and balance. He was a fine teacher and a great man. Now, uh, later on, I was apprenticed to the Bristol Motor Company, and during my apprenticeship, complete cars were designed and made in every detail. I worked in a small group under the eagle eye of a master mechanic. He was a great martinet and told us that we must never dash off the moment it was so blue. My first duty was to finish the, every detail that I was working on and then when I finished to lay his lunch out, wet his tea and then I could go and have my own lunch. From him I learned to operate several machine tools and a wide range of workshop technique, seldom included in today's curriculum. When I left the Bristol Motor Company, my first job was with the Straker Company of Fishbonds, Bristol, who manufactured steam wagons, motor vehicles, and marine engines. I went into their vehicle design office and started on the design of a gearbox, which I eventually had the pleasure of seeing made. I then started on the design of a four-cylinder, 15-horsepower car, which eventually was an exhibited at the 7th International Motor Show at Olympia in 1970. It was very well received and during the next seven years became one of the most successful medium-sized cars in Britain of those days. During the war, I was first engaged on delivering cars and lorries to the war office. I then applied to go into the Royal uh, Naval Volunteer Reserve and was accepted but was later sent back to Brazil Straker to make aero engines. In 19, 
1917, I put forward my first design of aero engine from the Admiralty, and it was accepted. And we made a batch of these engines and got an order uh, at the end of the war, which never came to fruition. I got a great deal of help by meeting government officials and service people during the war, which I, whom I think did me a lot of good. And I remember particularly Colonel Bagnall Wild of the AID and Major Norman of the Royal Aircraft Establishment. Finally, um, after the war, I started on uh, a new design of engine, only unfortunately this firm, uh, my, uh, the Straker Company, became involved in some financial troubles, which caused uh, the firm to close down. So I immediately looked around uh, to see where I could place my design of engine. And eventually, the Bristol Aeroplane Company decided to take me on and bought the, the designs of the Brazil Straker Company. And I went to Fishponds uh, with a team of 30 fellows from Brazil Straker uh, to found uh, the engine division of the Bristol Company. I had a wonderful opportunity to start off from the green field with plenty of open space down at Patchway to build modern test craft plant and equipment. I appreciated the enormous advantage of being situated on an aerodrome. It gave me the opportunity to see how our engines behaved under flying conditions and also enabled me for, to show the pilots what we were doing and the patience and care we took in making their engines. Setting up a new engine factory at that time was an extremely tricky business because with other established companies already in the field, our rapid demise was prophesied. How nearly this came about is too long a story to tell. But fortunately, within seven years, we had the cream of the Royal Air Force engine orders and had sold the license of my Jupiter engine to 15 different countries aboard. This gave me a wonderful opportunity of visiting these licensees and made it clear to me a matter which is very much in the public eye today. If a country only manufactures under license, it can never be in the vanguard of air power. The Bristol Board gave me a free hand and showed great wisdom in ploughing back the considerable royalties from our Jupiter engine license, which gave us one of the most modern and up-to-date factories in Europe at Patchway. In 1935, Sir Hugh Dowding, who is so much in the picture today, invited me to help him organize a shadow factory in the Midlands of the motor car manufacturers 
to produce crystal engines. This was the first shadow factory that was started up in the late 30s when the, the Nazi menace was very much in front of everybody. Other further successful shadow factories made, but the Bristol one was the first. As a matter of interest, by August 1939, my original 30 fellows, which I brought over uh, to Catchway in August 1920, had grown to 16,000 people and over 26,000 bristle engines had been made. Another interesting uh, figure, perhaps, is that during the five and a half years of war, the number of people in Britain on bristle engines had risen to just over 71,000, and the total output to over 116,000. Looking back, I should not like to pretend that my leadership showed any particular uh, originality. What helped me was that we had a team of jolly sound practical engineers who were prepared, who were prepared to work tremendously hard all hours because they believed in our designs. In fact, it was our will to do a good job rather than perhaps our ability that read, led to such extraordinary progress. I realize now how little I could have accomplished without the tremendous help and the remarkable spirit of enthusiasm and loyal support from all my staff. Very early on, uh, I called in a number of outside people to help me on building up um, the engine department. And I must mention to you my friend, Professor Leslie Aitchison, who helped me so much on our materials laboratory and heat treatment department. This is no doubt, there is no doubt he had a pr profound effect uh, upon my design team and myself. Rex Pearson of Vickers Arthur Gouge of Shorts and Harry Holland of Gloucester were three aircraft designers who gave me consistent support throughout the development of my engine program. Sir Hugh Dowding particularly and also Sir Henry Tizard, Major Buchanan and Major Bowman all gave me good support and advice during the growth of the great Bristol Engine Division. Of course, we had our setbacks and difficulties. I think our greatest headache was to find a solution for the layout of our double row engines. I'd always been interested in the Burton McCullum sleeve valve engine, which won the 1912 Government Aero Engine Competition. In 1927, the patents having lapsed, the aircraft minist and air ministry invited Bristol to apply the single sleeve valve engine to their designs. 
upon which I embark with great enthusiasm. The radial engine is well adapted to the single sleeve valve principle, especially for double row engines, as it provided a clean cylinder exterior, avoided all oil leaks, and gave a neat symmetrical layout as well as increased breathing efficiency. Our chief problem, however, uh, was finding a suitable material uh, of sufficient expansion qualities to meet the varying temperatures. From this I had a wonderful support from the first company. When I left the Bristol Company in 19, the end of 1942, I had a most interesting time a special technical advisor to the Ministry of Aircraft Production, Sir Stafford Cripps. I found him a splendid fellow to work for. He liked people willing to take responsibility, and I had a small department of a dozen people to help me. I headed missions to America, Canada, and Italy during the war. I think the most interesting trip of all was to Germany immediately after the war to investigate their jet engine position and their research work. We flew over to Germany shortly after the close of hostilities in two Dakotas with eight engineers to support me and a couple of jeeps inside so as we could move around as the German towns were so tremendously uh, sh shut up from our bombing. I was immediately very impressed by the advanced state of their gas turbines, <coughs> which we found in great quantity production. They were neat and efficient, well planned for manufacture, smaller in diameter than ours, and altogether far more advanced than the simple, perhaps somewhat crude designs in production at Britain. The same applied to the very advanced experiments we found at their underground Vulcan Roda Research Center near Brunswick, about which nobody in of our security department had anything, any knowledge about at all. We found that they had highly developed wind tunnels underground for testing up to Mark III and optical interferometer equipment quite unknown to this country or America. In fact, we saw models under test of what was to become the USA B-47 bomber in a few years' time. And I and a few of my team were examining the model under interferometer conditions when it disappeared and there's no doubt about it, our American friends took it away in a jeep overnight. We also found near Omoramagao in carefully protected underground caves the most beautiful slim, swept-wing fighters under development, with axial-flow engines buried in the whole fuselage. These were 
superb designs and and their fig the figures prophesied for them, which I think were absolutely correct, were over 650 miles an hour. We were astounded to come upon a revolutionary engine test bed for calibrating jet engines under altitude flight conditions. This was impressive and novel, and I arranged when I got back to England for British engines to be sent over uh, to Germany uh, for calibration purposes, and this was done, and engines went from Rolls um, to Bristol and to Haviland with very valuable results. Unfortunately, as usual, this test plan was collared by America and went over to USA. On the Autobahn, we came across rows of twin-engine jet bombers I knew absolutely nothing about and single-engine fighters which had been taken there as a last desperate effort to take off when our bombing destroyed all their aerodromes. The aircraft that we saw and the engines that we were about uh, and the engines that were, that were about to come out in tens of thousands were more advanced than we had any ever contemplated and if the war had gone on another 18 months our air superiority would have been in serious danger. On the other hand our aircraft and engines, most of which existed when the war broke out, had had the last ounce squeezed out of them and we just managed to destroy the Axis powers in time with our obsolete aircraft. In the case of Germany, it was a matter of the better being the enemy of the good. We found examples of Hitler having given direction for some very new engine to be put into production before it was ready. And after months of agony and delay, it had to be stopped because of teething troubles. When I went to America with a group of 16 engine en engineers, uh, on an assignment from Sir Stafford Cripps uh, to get forward-thinking information on their production, uh, the Americans were, of course, leaning backwards to give us every help they could. And I took a, a good team of technical men over with me to study American production air methods and to see if there was anything we could learn in time for the war. We flew the length and breadth of America and visited over 50 different plants. We were greatly impressed with the advances that had been made in planning for production. When we got home, we prepared a complete report, which was used by the British aircraft industry for a number of years after the war. At first, industry in this country was, was very skeptical of the size of the American staff, which I and my people reported to be busy on forward planning. So incredulous were they about these figures that they nicknamed this section of the report, Fedden's Folly. 
1944, my friend Wellwood Beale, chief engineer of Boeing, made a tour of British aircraft plants. He was able to confirm all the figures given in our report, except by then his firm had already several hundred more people than we had stated was the case. Apropos this report, when I was in Germany immediately after the war, I applied for a friend of mine, the chief engineer of VMW called Bruckmann, who had been imprisoned by the Americans to be handed over to me. He proved most useful and showed me where a number of secret developments had been hidden. One lovely summer day, we were sitting at the side of the autobahn, lunching off our famous American K-rations, when he turned to me and said, three days before Christmas, in 1943, I had a copy of your American report. I was so shattered, I could hardly speak for a moment, because this had been our top secret magnum opus. He replied, however, a, a dozen of us spent all Christmas Day with Goering, dissecting it chapter by chapter. Actually, we thought it was a very good report, and you might think it would have done us a lot of good, but it didn't. We knew you, and we knew you were a good engineer, and we realized that if you had reported correctly, as we were sure you had, it was impossible for Germany ever to win. So don't you worry. In a funny, roundabout way, your report did a much bigger thing for the defeat of Germany because we had it. Um, of course, when I went to Germany and saw the most remarkable uh, developments going on, which were all due uh, to go to Russia in a couple of weeks, I flew back and saw my chief, the staff of Cripps, uh, and told him how distressed I was uh, of the partition of Germany and that the Russians were now going to be allotted by far the most important section of the country with all the machine tool manufacturers, the like the Zeiss plant uh, and several others. I also pointed out how very serious it would be if important and secret developments were to pass to the Russians. His answer was, well, when the partition was agreed, we hadn't even got anywhere near defeating the Germans, and we were not in Germany, and we were prepared to, ex to accept anything. It's too late now to make any changes, but you can bring back anything you like with you, uh, and I give you a free hand to do whatever you care to do in this respect. In fact, when we were leaving Germany with the last load of bits and pieces, we saw uh, from the air the long lines of Russians coming in a few miles away. I got wonderful examples of uh, their new equipment, the complete new jet engine buried in a haystack in, in Austria, and all sorts of interesting developments 
which I had all laid out at my office at MAP in building. I was naturally very interested in this and uh, Sir Winston Churchill and Sir Stafford Cripps came along quite early on to see it. But the rank and pile of the RAF and the, and the Br British aircraft industry uh, were not at all sympathetic in that way. They said to me, what the dickens have you brought all this German stuff back? Haven't we won, won the war? What do we want with that? There won't be another. Of course, this was uh, very galling to me and my staff because uh, we've come back thoroughly indoctrinated with the idea that it wasn't a question of peace and, and easy living here in England after the war, but we learned things were going to be pretty difficult and we realized the value of all this information that we brought. It took a year or two for this question to sink in, but nevertheless it did in due course, but a bit late. 